has all the knowledge you want. Malik books has all the knowledge you need. Malik books. Yeah, they have all the books that the whole wide world wanna read. Malik books. Welcome to Malik's Bookshelf, bringing a world together with books, culture, and community. Hi, my name is Malik, your host of Malik's Bookshelf. Woo, it's been a couple of weeks that we have been on fire. And all the interviews that i done the previous week, I'm going to conclude this week. And I, I have interviewed... Timothy Fields and Shereen Brown, who authored The Black Family's Guide to College Admissions, a conversation about education, parenting, and race. I'd done a book review on that book where I had the pleasure of speaking with both of them, and they are going to bring to us the inside background on the book, The Black Family Guide to College Admissions. So that's going to be featured on this episode, which is episode 41. Chucking along, I'll be at 50 soon. Also, on this episode, I was at the Bobby shop getting my hair cut. And we got to talking about some things that in the in the community and stuff that stem from television and issues that a lot of men talk about when they sitting in the barber chair. So I thought it would just be refreshing to record and they both agreed. And we just, you know, continue our organic, robust conversation. So I'm going to have to bring that conversation to you over a series of weeks. Uh, this is today is going to be this episode is going to be part one of the barbershop talks. And we're going to be discussing uh, reality TV and the things that take place that are unrealistic on reality TV and black women. So we're going to be discussing that first part on this episode. And the other thing that I'm going to be discussing on this episode is a conversation I had with Will Gerondo, who's authored a new book called My Seven Black Fathers, a young activist memoir of race, family and the mentors who made him whole. So we did an in-person conversation book signing event at an off-site location. It was wonderful. Had a great turnout. I got a chance to talk to him for my podcast for a few minutes. And he's going to touch on um, the, some meat and potatoes about his book. So this episode, enjoy. Enjoy. It's episode 41. All right, you can begin. Talk about that reality TV, brothers. Oh, man, the reality TV about the women that they all screwed up on the real. The, the, reality, the, the reality TV. My audience need this realness. Man, I'm trying to keep Got it real. Got two bro. strong black men. Talk to me, brother. Come on back man, in. Man, Come on back real. in. Come on back in here. Keep it real, brother. We're going to keep it real today. But on the we're gonna keep the we're gonna keep the names they, private. They they they, they see them the, them people in them five star restaurants like throwing them chairs and tables and bottles across the table thinking they that's real. You don't think they gonna go to jail immediately if that was real life? Real talk. It's all it's you, fake. You got all them white folks sitting there and you just gonna fake. you gonna, you gonna throw a bottle of wine across the whole room, dressing up, a, looking a, cute, a chair, looking fine, and you throwing, throwing bottles. You gonna run outside, run back in with something, and nobody gonna take you to jail. Everybody's going to sit there well, and keep eating. And, and, and they literally think that's reality. And they, they think, think it's real. real. You got to look at the ones who are controlled in the TV show to wonder why these TV shows are being put out the way they're being put out. 
Because these TV shows are these housewives, the real housewives, Orange County housewives, South Central housewives, McDonald housewives, you name them, all these shows are geared to destroy the black family. Like because what it does, it puts the woman in a position to think that she's more above her man. That's why you see these women on these shows going on, screaming, acting like a fool. They're nowhere in their character as a woman, meaning in their character, meaning the nature in which Allah has created them. All that loud talking, cursing each other out, trying to be the boss woman is, the boss this, the boss that. You know what I'm saying? Over talking a man, sticking a chest out on a man. You see what I'm saying? Fighting with the other sisters, calling each other bitches and whores and all these names. And next thing you notice, this mentality becomes the way of, of the way of life on the streets. So when you look at the majority of women today, they watch this stuff so much that now this reality TV has become their actual life. This is mm. how they live. Mm. You look at the way they dress. They mm. dress like those women. They make they 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 style their hair like they women. They walk around looking like modern day prostitutes with these tight tight clothes on. They booze all exposed. You know what I'm saying? Back in the seventies and the eighties, those are the women you saw walking on Figueroa and on Sunset Boulevard. Now Shaitan has made that way of dress fashion and he made that way of acting as the standard for all women to act and since they discuss so much of what about job, you brother you, you he touched on the way the women dress what about you do you feel share the same you know thoughts that, uh, that a woman walking around with uh i guess salacious outfits on or more revealing outfits on is that acceptable to you or do you have an issue with it Oh, it's not acceptable to me, but mm -hmm. you know, at the same time, they've been taught that it's a majority thing now. Mm -hmm. So now it's it's, it's 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 acceptable to be that way. It's acceptable to say f that nigga. It's acceptable to say take his money, girl. You know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, they all in unison. You know, like he said, take the man the man out of his role. You put the woman there, and who who gonna win there? Because you got a bunch of dudes around here that's just willing to bend over backwards for any woman they see. He was like, here, yeah, just let her have it, bro. It's, it's all good. We ain't, we, ain't got no, we ain't got nothing to say. When in reality, mm -hmm. you do. You mm -hmm. got a right to say whatever you need to say. Now, we at the barbie shop. We getting this barbie shop talk going on. But they didn't took every right from you. You know what I mean? And now we so scared to be men because, shoot, half the men want to be women nowadays anyway. Mm. The mm. funny part is, it's like, it's not even, I think they taking away the rights. We worship money and materialism so much we will turn our backs on our god-given right to chase that money to live that lifestyle that satan said if you live like this you'll be recognized you'll be honored in society go out in society and wear hardly no clothes at all see the decent woman covers herself mm -hmm. See, it's like you walking down the street. You ain't gonna walk down the street with five thousand dollar cash in your hand because you know. So, what's your thought when you see a woman walking down the street, fashionable but yet somewhat revealing? How do you react and how do you respond? She's trying to catch somebody. 
Mm-hmm. She's trying. She's trying to use her body as a way to catch somebody. She nobody Did she you know catch you? Did you double take? Oh yeah, you can't help <laughs> but the double take. Because made that woman body so beautiful, so curved up. Yeah. But you can't help but to look. But see, but that's yeah. the thing. They know that's their weapon. Uh-huh. They don't show the mind. They don't show the mind. They showing the behind. But, 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 but they don't show the mind, but they show the behind. And she they fine, know, isn't she? They know, they know we men, we're not on a high spiritual level. We still worship our lower self, mm, our flesh. Many women so have made the man put yeah. the Bible down. Yeah. So, so when you show, many you women have made the man put the Bible down because yeah. of her beauty. Because yeah. of her beauty, not necessarily her brains, although it could be a combination of both. Right. But many women have caused many men to bring ranks from their faith. Be- <laughs> they do that because they attract the ones they know they can control doing that shit. Hey, they have brought down the strongest of men. You know the story of... Samson and Delilah, he's a strong, godly man. Hell, she brought him down. The black family's guide to college admissions, I mean, it speaks for itself. And I think that you're on point because that subtitle, A Conversation About Education, Parenting, and Race, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm happy that you're here at Malik's, but I want to talk to you about uh, your book. And uh, we have Timothy Fields here and Shereen Brown, right? Okay. Okay, okay. And so welcome, welcome, welcome. And I just want you to tell my audience, so I did a book review, but now that I got you here, yeah. I, it's easier for you to tell my audience about your book than me because you wrote it. Let me start with you, Timothy. Yeah. So thanks for having us. Um, you know, I think one of the big reasons we wrote the book was just uh, to put information out there. You know, we found in our experience in over 25 years working in this field, uh, there's an information gap that just black families have as far as information that's available to them. And actually an article kind of, you know, drove this. So, you know, about a third of, of, of black students get information from their families as opposed to two thirds of white students and other races. So we just said there was no information. And then obviously there was no admission book that particularly talked to black people. And we really wanted to think about the decisions that, you know, black people have to make as they go through this process. And both of us are parents. Like I live it. I got twins that are not years old like where are they going to school you know you know what what is the diversity in their school you know what is their day-to-day experience going to be and having to balance that out and like what trade-offs do we have so i think those were the things that were important to me and then i'm a graduate of morehouse so really kind of putting hbcus at the forefront and having more people consider them was also something important we wanted to get out Wonderful, wonderful. Morehouse man. Yeah, I'll pay you back on that and say that I think the, the main thing for me was a sense of the information gap. I kind of felt like black families uh, don't always approach this process, the college admissions process, with a sense of urgency. And I really wanted that to hit home and say, look, it's, it's a two-way street. The colleges want you, but you got to want them. And there has to be some kind of reciprocity in terms of communication. But there's also this third piece of the puzzle, which is the institution you attend, the, the school, the high school, the secondary school. And I have felt very, very frustrated throughout my 25 years in this industry, profession, whatever you want to call it, about the, the school counselor, college counselor advice that goes to black families. You know, a lot of black families, as Tim says, make cultural sacrifices moving their kids to predominantly white suburbs, predominantly white schools, in the search for a better quote-unquote education. And in that, the end goal of getting to a good school, great college, sometimes I think somebody drops the ball. And do I want to put all the blame on the college counselors? No. Do I want to put all the blame on the families? I do not. What I want to make sure people know is that 
We, as black people, cannot tolerate college counselors undermatching, is what we call it, where they see a kid with tremendous potential and sometimes uh, recommend, in my opinion, subpar schools, kids aren't like schools that aren't going to help them to maximize that. Uh, a lot of school counselors are not black people or black, you know, uh, people, and they don't know enough about HBCUs. And that's something that even though I went to a PWI, my son goes to PWI, my oldest daughter went to HBCU. Black people need to know about both. We need to make sure we understand the choices. So that's really why we wrote the book. We want to make sure that black families understood how the college process works, understood that there are X factors involved, given the fact that they're black and depending on what their socioeconomic status may be. And the real context of the book was helping us to better understand um, our importance and our ability to navigate this process successfully if we approach it with a sense of urgency. Is there, is there an advantage or disadvantage or there, is there a stark contrast between going to a HBCU, a black college versus a predominantly white school? No. And I think that's one of the major takeaways we want people to understand is uh, we talk about we call it redefining success. And so when you think about successful black people, uh, you got Barack Obama and you have Michelle Obama. They went to Ivy League stu- schools. But you also have Oprah Winfrey. You have, you know, um, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris. And then there are, you know, lots of other successful black people who went to HBCUs. And so in the back of our book, we have a table that has almost 100 uh, black individuals in which, you know, we want to highlight that, you know, about 50-50, some of them went to PWI, some of them went to HBCUs. So there's not one path for success. And we want people to understand that. So, you know, who is one of the richest black people in the world? Oprah Winfrey, she went to Tennessee State. But who was, you know, would, would people arguably the most powerful black man in the world? You know, Barack Obama. He started Occidental, mm-hmm. transferred, you know, to Columbia. So we want people to really understand those those options that they have and just to say, oh, because somebody goes to a PWI, that doesn't guarantee this success. But if somebody goes to HBCU, that doesn't say that they're not preparing themselves for the real world. And on the same token, going to an HBCU doesn't guarantee success either. You got to do what's right for your kid or the parents got to do it and, and mm-hmm. encourage their kids to explore all the options. You know, I'm going to give a shout out to, you know, the, um, in L.A. to Endeavor, which is a big, you know, sports marketing, you know, acting agency out here. Their COO, their chief operating officer went to Wesleyan University. Okay. You know what I mean? So that's okay. a PWI, a small liberal arts school. So there are, but then again, there's uh, the gentleman who used to manage Beyonce, Steve Padilla, who went to Morehouse. So there's, like Tim said, success is defined in a lot of different ways. And I want to make sure that families understand that, students understand that, parents understand that, and at the same time, approach this process with an open mind. Mm-hmm. Don't be so narrowly focused on what the rest of the world tells you. I mean, Tim writes a really good uh, uh, chapter about perception and reality mm-hmm. and understanding that just because one was well, good for one person doesn't mean it's necessarily good for you. Absolutely. And you have to it has to be a very personal process. Absolutely. One more question from the audience. Because um, one of the things that I talked to Timothy earlier was about the fact that people pay a lot of money to go to these schools and get educated, whether they have a BA or a BS degree. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you give parents because, you know, if, you know, majoring in sociology and psychology or some of these you know, majors, sometimes, you know, they can't get a job when they graduate. That, that, that's a big soapbox for me where I really want families to um, prioritize when they're looking for colleges. First, the cost. Money matters. We live in America. So 
cost, then location. How far it's going to be from your kid? Um, you, know, you said you went from Washington, D.C. out to L.A. You ain't been back. So, so, so recognize that once your kid leaves home at 18, they might find another life somewhere else. Yeah. So cost, location, and then the possible major and the possible career. College is a four-year, ideally, four-year experience that's going to go by fast. So if you don't go in there with a plan, I think you set yourself up to be confused and kind of sample a buffet too much. Mm-hmm. And not really stick to you know meat and potatoes, steak, pizza, just one thing. Yeah. And again, I majored in English. I have a master in English. I have a master, excuse me, a double major in African American studies. However, I do think that students who do predominantly non-pre-professional majors um, are setting themselves up to have a more challenging time professionally. Mm -hmm. And I just want them to be aware of it so they can navigate it appropriately because some of our white counterparts, real talk, who can major in French and philosophy, then go work for their daddies or their mama's, you know, ex-friend's boyfriend. Like, that nepotism is real. And if you don't have that in place, what I'm saying is liberal arts is a luxury. It's not that Mm -hmm. it's wrong, Mm -hmm. but at the end game, where are you going to work? Are you going to start your own business at 22 years old? I don't know. But don't get caught up in saying going to college is going to make me rich one day. There's got to be yeah, return on investment. That philosophy is real. A lot of people think that just because no. they get a degree that they're going to have a job the minute no. they walk out, only no. to find out later on that they're unemployed working and in a different field. For 30 years. Yes. yes. For a degree, you know. That I, someone I saw this on Facebook one day. Somebody said, "Tell Sally May, I don't want you know, I, I don't want this degree no more. She can take it back. <laughs> How about that? Take it back, and you get my money back." Yeah. So yeah. again, I, I think it's just cost, location, major, and career is honestly um, a big piece of puzzle. So mm-hmm. we put this book together, wanted to talk to black families about the process, about the options they have, and about the importance of really understanding that. Um, they have more than one option. They don't listen to one person. Yes, yes. Yeah. Any final thoughts, Timothy? Yeah, you know, one thing on this cost thing that I, you know, I try and you know tell families is a lot. A lot of families don't talk about money early enough, and they put start putting together college lists and you know just say, hey, just go apply where you get it. And they don't have like you know how much is it going to cost? You know, do we have the resources there? Really having you know conversation with their children about what are the finances of the house. And then when you get to college, you know, I tell fam, I tell families, loan isn't a bad four-letter word if it's done responsibly. So, yeah, you know, we don't want parents to take out plus loans and go in debt as far as parents. I think if students take out a loan, it needs to be on them, but it needs to be done in a responsible way because I look at it as an investment in yourself. If you have a dream school that you want to go to and maybe you need to take out, you know, a couple thousand dollars of loans to make that happen, I think you should do that because, if you know, if somebody comes out of, you know, college with fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 in debt, that's an investment in yourself because the lifetime earnings you're going to make from that are <laughs> Are going to pay off. So just having those real candid conversations about money uh, early on in the process and not just, you know, wait until a student gets in and then have it because those are when a lot of challenges come in families. Absolutely. Well, you heard it firsthand right here at Malik Books with the two authors who wrote the book, The Black Family Guide to College Admissions. Thank you, Timothy. Thank you, Shereen. No problem. Hey, thank you for having us. No, we're, we're, really excited, man. We're, we're, we're really excited about you having us here. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. You know how Malik do it. Anytime I see an author, but he's more than an author. This brother's a congressman, I believe, right? Councilman. Okay, let me get it right. Maybe you're going into a future. Right. I appreciate it. 
but he's the author of My Seven Black Fathers. His name is Will Jawando. Did I get that right, my brother? Okay, we got a bell popping here, so that, you're right. <laughs> Maybe they selling us dinner, sir. <laughs> so, my brother, back to you after the proper introduction. But his, your subtitle is called A Young Activist Memoir of Race, Family, and the Mentors Who Made Him Whole. Talk about your book. Talk about these people. It's important to you. They help mentor you and guide you. Yeah, well, one, thank you for what you're doing to get a lot of good books out in the world. Um, my Seven Black Fathers is really a love letter to black men and boys. It's, uh, it's my personal story, but told through the lens of these seven black men and others who literally saved my life by stepping in when I needed guidance, when I needed love, when I needed someone to help me steer in the right direction uh, in the absence of my biological father early on. And it really is also a effort to kind of push back against this stereotype of the absent black father and all the things they say about us. This is happening in, in relation, these relationships are happening in communities across the country every day. My story is not unique in that regard, but I think we don't necessarily understand the power of them when we engage with each other as, as brothers in particular. Yes, yes. Well, you know, it reminds me of someone near and dear that I consider a mentor. He was like a father to me. When I came out here to California, went to USC, he was the only, I don't have family. I'm from where you at? I'm from D.C., born and raised. Went to, went to Oxen Hill High School. Oxen Hill. Oxen Hill. So you're from, you're from Prince George's County, man. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. I grew up in Silver Spring Langley Park, man. Okay. Right down the road. Right down the road. See, so when I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I came out here in the 80s, I didn't have nobody. But David Henderson picked me up from the airport, toured me around, you know, L.A. And then as a result, um, I made my decision to come west. And he was in my life ever since. And, I, you know, he, he was like a mentor to me. Without him guiding me, you know, I had no mother, no father, nobody out here. So I could relate. I could relate. Hey, the people came out for you tonight. That's a good thing. You got something to say because my seven black father, each one, scoped at you a little differently. Can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, one of the things here is that they're all different men. You know, my fourth grade math teacher, Mr. Williams, I meet him. I only know him nine months. Don't even know his first name. He's talking about him 30 years later. Uh, all the way to Barack Obama. I meet him when I'm in my 20s working in D.C. on Capitol Hill. And he really helps me in my development as a husband and a father. So all these men were very different, knew them for different amounts of time. They gave me different things. But the point is, is that what they gave me was invaluable and powerful. And if we engage with each other, we can literally save each other's lives. Oh, man. Speak on that. Still shopping still like men shopping men. You just told me you had Barack Obama as a mentor. You're going to have to go a little deeper than that, my brother. Come on, give it to me. Yeah, I mean, so I, I meet him when I'm uh, working on Capitol Hill. And he, I don't know him at first, but over time, I start to get to know him as a staffer in his office. I get married to my wife, Michelle, 16 years. We have our first two children while I'm working in the White House. And he gives me really practical advice. Like, look, uh, when, you, when you have a child, it changes your relationship. You're going to have to... Uh, be more sensitive, pick up some other duties, you know, like he's real practical, not separate and apart from 
just him being an example, right? Because right. a big part of mentorship is an example. Like you can see people from afar, see what they're doing and try to model that. But then he engaged with me in a practical way about how to actually navigate being a young husband, a father, and working in a crazy environment in politics. So that's, and we play some basketball along the way, but you got to read the book for that. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, hey, hey, brother, you gave me some live information for my audience on Malik's book show. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> read the book, My Seven Fathers. Thanks for listening to Malik's Bookshelf, where topics on the shelf are books, culture, and community. Be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. Check out my Instagram at Malik Books. See you next time.